Hi there. Thanks for tuning into the M2.0 series of the AMSA Ampu podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'm really excited to be able to share the conversation that I had with Dr. Elise Wilson recently. Dr. Wilson is a public health registrar and research fellow working in global maternal child health and nutrition at the Burnett Institute. She has training in both medicine, nutrition, and dietetics, and also further qualifications in public health, obstetrics, and gynecology, which gives her a unique intersection of expertise to be speaking on our topic today of food and medicine. She works clinically at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, and she's currently undertaking a PhD examining the quality of maternal and child health systems in Papua New Guinea. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we reside here in what is now known as Australia, the place of recording, and specifically the Wurundjeri people. I extend my respects to elders of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, past, present, and emerging. AMSA acknowledges that sovereignty of this land has never been ceded, and this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm only human, can you see? I made, I made a mistake. Please just look me in my face. Tell me everything's okay. Cause I got it. Ooh, never be like you. Hi, Dr. Wilson. Welcome to today's episode of the M2.0 series of the AMSA Ampule podcast, Being a Medical Foodie, Diet, Doctors and Disease. How are you going today? Good, Reuben. How are you? Yeah, I'm great as well. Thank you. Um, so I was thinking maybe we could start off by having you tell us a little bit more about your work as a public health registrar and the other work you do as well. Yeah, sure. You're right. I'm a public health registrar at the moment at the Burning Institute working in global maternal um, and child health and nutrition, mainly in low middle income countries across the Pacific. And my main, the main country that I work in is Papua New Guinea. But before I started this, this training program as a public health, to become a public health physician, I initially trained um, in my undergraduate de- degree as a, to be a dietitian. So I completed a nutrition and dietetics degree at Monash University which then took me to working in remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in Cape York and the Torres Strait for a few years, particularly working around remote food supply as a public health nutritionist. So I think that um, that passion for and that interest in public health has has been there for a long time. And this is a really um, incredibly interesting role and really showed some of those, the sort of social determinants in regards to food clearing at the forefront. And then I uh, think some of these experiences up there uh, spurred my interest in considering a career in medicine and uh, went back to do postgraduate medicine at at University of Melbourne. And then after doing my sort of clinical years, realised that I was really passionate about public health still and decided to do public health training. And along the way, I did a diploma in obstetrics and gynaecology. So I have a quite a focus on maternal child health and perinatal health. And so that's where my interest is going forward. Wow. So yeah, it really is quite a range of experiences that you've had. Do you think that mix of having experience in nutrition, dietetics, public health and medicine is something you've always envisioned or is that something that you've grown into over time? Yeah, it's a funny question, isn't it? Like I think when everyone looks back on the journey that they've taken to where they are now, they, it kind of makes sense. There's maybe a wobbly path, but it kind of feels like there's some flow there. But at the time, I don't think that you can plan it out that way. 
I think um, there's a very famous speech by Steve Jobs um, at Stanford University to a graduating class and he talks about you know how the dots connect when you look back but you can't see those connections beforehand something along those lines but yeah so I think um, for me when I started working now as a like well you know I started doing my public health training about 18 months ago and when I started doing that it felt like all of these different degrees that I'd studied and experiences that I had had really molded into one Um, and it was quite a it was quite a sort of yeah really interesting and um, enriching sort of experience to sort of realize oh wow like all of this, all these these different things I've done, I feel like they're all coming together now in a really nice package. And yeah, I feel like I've really found the place that I want to work in and the work I want to do. And I'm incredibly enjoy it. Feel very lucky and privileged to work in in this space. Yeah, well, it must be a pretty good feeling to have these wide variation of experiences and knowledge coalescing into this quite specific niche that you're in right now. Yeah, I think you probably know medical medical students are notorious for not knowing what they want to do often, you know, even junior doctors. So I think once you finally, and, you know, I think it is hard. We have a lot, we're, we're so lucky in medicine. We have so many options of what we can study and what we can do. And, you know, I think um, we often are sort of grappling with, do I want to do this or this? And um, I think once you work out the specialty that you want to go into it, it is quite satisfying because you can just sort of focus your attention in one space. Yeah, going off of that, I think a lot of the listeners may not be that familiar with what the work and life of a public health registrar is actually like. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. You're right. I think public health medicine is quite a small training program. We have less than 100 trainees in Australia currently um, undertaking training, uh, which is much smaller than many of the other specialty programs. So people are often not very familiar with public health medicine training. So to talk about what, um, how you start training. So to become, to enter the public health training program, you need to have completed, I think it's three years of clinical training. So your internship and a, a few more years, and then you need to, uh, and you can do that in any space. So you know, it doesn't matter what clinical experience you have, um, you can do it in any area. And then you need to do a master of public health and there's certain subjects you need to do as part of that, that the college requires. So the Australian Faculty of Public Health Medicine sits within the Royal Australasian College of Physicians and there's you know certain requirements for training entry that that includes. So the master of public health, there's certain core subjects you need to do. And then there's sort of an application process as well. And you need to find an accredited position, which is also not many of, but you can get certain positions if you're working in a space which is public health related, you can get that accredited. In, in terms of what the sort of a daily you know, job or a, a day in the life of a public health registrar, it's incredibly varied. Public health registrars work, you know, in, in many different settings. They work in research, in teaching, in policy making, in programs. They'll work for non-government organisations, for government, in universities, in health departments. You know, they can work uh, rurally or remotely or in the cities. They, yeah, so it's incredibly different work. I, I think I, I wrote a piece for a day on the life, the On the Wards website, which I, c- I can provide maybe as a supplement to this podcast. And that day was actually a day that I had in PNG and it described what, what my job as a public health registrar was like in Papua New Guinea. So that was, you know, that involved meeting with different um, local government officials from the de- from the provincial health department involved going out to hospitals and health services and meeting with clinicians and healthcare workers, talking to community, you know, meeting with different key stakeholders around a maternal child health program we were trying to get off the ground. And at the same time, you know, connecting in with different students that I um, supervise with their projects, preparing you know, some slides for a lecture or something. And so, you know, one day can be incredibly, incredibly varied and, and really interesting. 
Mm. And do you think there are a lot of advantages to having an MPH qualification on top of an MD, even if you don't necessarily become a public health physician? Yeah, look, I think I think the MP, I mean, a medical degree is a fantastic degree to have, and obviously a lot of the listeners of this podcast will be um, medical students. And in terms of having an MPH on top of that, I think it's really, really valuable, uh, regardless of what specialty you go into um, after finishing med school. I think the Master of Public Health, there's so many different subjects you can undertake. You can look at health economics, you can look at health policy, look at health systems, or if there's particular topic areas that interest you, maybe it's child health or human rights or gender issues um, mm. you, or climate change. You, you know, there's really so much scope. And I mean, I, I know surgeons that have done MPHs, I know GPs that have wow. pediatricians. You know, I think the benefits of a Master of Public Health is, is far, far reaching. So, yeah, I'd highly recommend it, even for people that don't necessarily want to become uh, a public health physician. And what's the general training pathway like from a junior doctor to public health physician? Yeah, so I, I guess um, the the title when you finish your training is a, a public health physician. So we have to obviously have to sit an exam and there's different you know assessment requirements throughout the training. So the training is, sorry, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but it's a three-year training program once you've met those other requirements. Um, and so, yeah, there's, a, there's an exam at the end. So... That's the next hurdle. Yeah, the exams don't really stop at medical school, do they? No. Yeah, so I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the COVID pandemic has affected your work or was actually involved in your work as well. Uh, yes, um, definitely feeling the brunt of COVID-19, mm. probably like all of us are, with our you know, big upheaval to our schedules and our, and our daily life. For myself, it's been you know, a really interesting opportunity to be involved in the, in the public health response. So... Um, I'm based in Victoria and early I, in February, some of the public health physicians that I know there just asked if there was any, anyone that was interested to help out. And so I initially was seconded from the Burnett to help for a couple of weeks. And that was very early in the response in the, you know, the, just the first few weeks of February, where really we're just sort of coming to terms with the fact that potentially there was a pandemic brewing. It hadn't been labelled as a pandemic yet. It didn't have a name yet. You know, COVID-19 came much later, you know, sort of mid-February, it was given a name. So that was quite interesting then. And then I stepped away and kept doing my normal Burnett work. And then in April, I, you know, late March, April, they called out for more help again. And so I went back into the department again. So I've been, since sort of late March, I've been working a week on, week off in the COVID-19 um, incident management team at the Department of Health in Victoria. And yeah, that's been, uh, it's incredibly hectic. Yeah. Uh, it's very fast paced. Things are changing rapidly. You know, obviously there was the whole need to, you know, build a, a huge amount of policy around the restrictions and um, quarantine measures and the healthcare services, health workers. And I mean, it, it has impacted on literally every aspect of our lives, which has meant that, you know, all the services and everything that we use and access have all equally been impacted. And so there's need to be advice provided to these different services and obviously you know department of education and so many different groups so it's been a it's yeah it's been a it's been a steep learning curve yeah. but incredibly um interesting and and rewarding and I, I yeah i'm very fortunate to be had a chance to to be part of it but um i am sort of looking forward to just having one job to focus on because it's yeah it's been pretty hectic few months yeah it's quite a divergence from your usual line of work isn't it yeah exactly and to just touch on the theme of new perspectives, you know, are there perhaps one or two moments in your career where there was a significant shift in perspective about something? 
Yeah, sure. So from an example with regards to nutrition, when I was trained to be a dietitian, uh, that was in the early 2000s, there was still a very strong focus on the low fat diet as a way for you know, preventing and managing cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, just general sort of health and well-being. Whereas we've really shifted away from that now and more, I think, you know, our nutrition advice now is more on, and this was there then, but it wasn't so emphasized, but really on whole foods and eating a, a variety of, you know, plant foods, fruit and vegetables, eating uh, whole grain breads and cereals, you know, obviously some meat or meat equivalents if someone's vegetarian yeah. or vegan, uh, dairy foods and you know minimizing discretionary foods like you know what we'd also call junk foods soft drinks and um, chips and chocolate and etc cetera, etc cetera. so I think we've really shifted towards a focus on whole foods now and whereas you know not really focusing on the low fat because we know there's some foods that are high fat which are incredibly nutritious for us such as you know fish or avocado or nuts and so I think our language has changed there mm. but interestingly and we'll, we might talk about this a bit later, but I think medical education perhaps is not always caught up. And so, you know, I remember this kind of inspired my interest in, you know, improving and being involved in improving nutrition and medical education is because I think there's still, you know, still lecturers floating around that are giving, you know, cardiovascular lectures who, for one, might not even touch on the role of diet, which is significant. Yeah in both the prevention and management, but also might be advocating a low-fat diet if they provide any sort of nutrition information. So, yeah, I think um, that's one of the major changes that I've seen yeah, so far. Yeah, it's really interesting you point that out. I remember being a primary school kid and being taught very much about the food pyramid and also seeing a lot of advertising on TV for low-fat products and also seeing a lot of them in the supermarket. And there certainly seems to have been more of a shift onto low sugar these days. No, you're right. I mean, yeah, you, you've touched on quite a few interesting points there. So the the food pyramid, we, we changed towards a plate now. So the Australian um, dietary guidelines are more represented in a plate format now. And that kind of represents not sort of just what a plate should look like, but in terms of your overall diet, the, you know, you should have predominantly, it should be made up of vegetables and then fruit you know, a smaller amount then of, you know, breads and cereals and then followed by like, you know, dairy and meat mm. and, and then you've got your, and it's sort of off the plate, they've got um, your sort of, you know, foods which you eat for pleasure and you enjoy, you know, what we might call junk foods, but they're not essential, so they're not on the plate. And then, we, you know, you've also got water and things, you know, as part of that plate combination as well. But, yeah, we moved away from the pyramid because it, I don't know if you remember that like oil, the things at the top of the pyramid were in the smallest amounts because they were sort of that tip of the pyramid. And then you had that wide yeah. base at the bottom. There was a very strong focus on breads and cereals, probably more so than fruit and vegetables, by having those at the bottom of the pyramid. And then we also had, you know, fats and oils and things at the top. And so there was some confusion there about whether that was promoting, you know, by having them at the top, did that sort of give the wrong message around, oh, these foods must, must be more important. So we sort of, yeah, there's been, and, there's, and you know, if you look around the world, um, Canada and the US and New Zealand, they, they also use different sort of iterations of sort of models or, or ways to diagram, diagrammatically um, present dietary guidelines. So there's, there's rainbows, there's steps, um, there's a whole lot of different ways to, yeah, to do that. And I think you're right, some of the, um, the messaging now maybe is potential, like sugar probably has been, label, you know, sort of the focus or is the flavour of the moment um, rather than yeah. fat. But there's a, a gastroenterologist in the UK who sort of said, you know, 
by us kind of labeling these nutrients like superheroes, you know, the good, the good guys, the bad guys, like it really kind of missing the picture. And I think that's, again, that whole food, whole of diet approach. And by singling out, you know, certain nutrients, it doesn't actually, it just creates often more confusion and yeah, it's not often giving the true picture of the, the situation anyway. And, um, you know, what do you think has really driven this change in viewing what constitutes a healthy diet? You know, now we look more at whole foods. Do you think there have been new developments in science, like as in new data? Do you think it's a shift in the way we looked at the existing data or perhaps even a higher up in terms of uh, culture change or societal change, changes in public policy or even changes in the way in which companies advertise their food? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a combination of those things. You know, I think definitely there's always new evidence emerging and new um, new science, which, you know, sort of strengthens these points of view or these, these guidelines. But, you know, I think that we can't talk about food and nutrition without recognising the significant influence that the the food industry plays on our food choices and on what we buy and when we buy it and when we eat it. You know, the catchy jingles, the branding, get the, you know, the happy meals where we get kids in from a really young age. We've got the sponsorship of Milo or McDonald's on different, you know, sporting events for young children or sporting clubs. I mean, all of these things um, have a significant influence on what we eat. But I think, you know, equally as we've recognised the importance of promoting whole foods, we've really easily, we've also recognised the evil that exists in the sense of the negative influence in regards to yeah. processed foods and the marketing of processed foods. And so I think there's been some really, um, really good advocacy work, particularly from um, there's a parents group that's done a lot of work around preventing advertising of, you know, towards children during their sort of TV viewing times and also um, trying to regulate advertising during sports matches and, and so forth. But, yeah, so in terms of the promotion of that sort of whole food approach and that, you know, eating a wide variety of healthy, nutritious foods, what a, a really landmark study, and I can provide the link to the paper for your listeners, is the PREDIMED study out of Spain. So it was a, a study that was a Mediterranean, it was a randomised control trial, which there's not many of in nutrition often because they, they're very challenging to do. But it randomised different groups who are at high risk of diabetes and, they, and cardiovascular disease into different groups, which they were either provided with like a control diet, like a low-fat diet, or they, they were all advised to eat a, a Mediterranean diet, which was supplemented with either olive oil or nuts. And they followed these groups over time. And without going into all the different statistics, basically the groups which had the Mediterranean diet and with the extra olive oil and nuts, their risk, risk of cardiovascular disease was reduced by 30% compared to the group which just followed the low-fat diet. Yeah, so this is significant. And I think, and also the interesting thing about this study is that it didn't, it didn't prescribe, you know, or you must only eat this many kilojoules or, you know, you must exercise this many times a day. It was purely the quality of the diet. And purely a focus on, you know, that is, you know, Mediterranean diet. So lots of lots of nuts and legumes and fish and vegetables and, you know, minimizing processed foods. So, yeah, it was a really, um, a really significant study. And there was even, I mean, even interestingly, there was, you know, someone, there was some groups that did some reanalyses and they, um, you know, they, this, in this journal, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine when it was first published. And they went back through the data and they said, oh, look, we think there's some errors here in, you know, the sampling of participants. And they went back to the initial authors and said, you know, can you review the numbers again? And so there was a whole, like, huge, very rigorous 
review of all the numbers. And yet, even with doing that and accounting for these, you know, sort of this feedback that had been provided by you know, other, other researchers, they still found this significant result of this 30% reduction. So I think it's well and truly been through <laughs> some very um, rigorous analysis and yet it's a significant study in showing the benefits of you know, a whole food Mediterranean-based diet. Yeah, and would you attribute most of the positive effects of the Mediterranean diet towards the fact that people are consuming more whole foods and consuming better quality nutrients rather than the possibility that a Mediterranean diet may tend to be less energy dense? Yeah, like I think in terms of the, yes, it's, it's the nutritional quality, which is really key. And that's where I think, you know, we have to look at the, that's why kilojoules is not, to me, is not the way that we should be measuring food. We shouldn't be measuring food in terms of calories or, um, you know, kilojoules, which we use in Australia, but actually looking at the, the quality. So is it, you know, is it nutrient rich, you know, is it nutrient deplete sort of mm. food? And so there's been there's some really nice diagrams which show, for example, two plates of food. And on one plate, you've got, you know, a, a say like a, a ratatouille or something like a nice, you yep. know, vegetables cooked in a tomato sauce with your eggplant, zucchinis, capsicum, whatever you put in there, onion and garlic. And then with a salad and maybe some fruit. And, you know, that might be, you know, a couple of thousand kilojoules, you know, for a meal, for example. And then on, the, on another plate, you'll have the same amount of kilojoules in a white roll with two pieces of salami and a piece of cheese and butter, for example, or margarine or whatever. And yet, if you look at those two different pictures, you can see that that meal where you've got all those vegetables and you've got some fruit and, you know, it's going to make you much fuller and you get, it's, you know, to me, it's much tastier as well, but yeah. you know, much fuller, much more nutrient rich compared to the other plate. So I think that's where, you know, I think we would get lost in this whole sort of energy and looking at foods just as they're based on the energy. It's not, it's missing the, the nutritional quality of the foods. No, today, I think there's a lot of focus on talking about just energy in, energy out. And it's as simple as the first law of thermodynamics. And I think there's a great focus on energy density of particular foods and perhaps not so much talk about the nutrient density or nutrient quality of particular foods. You know, do you think this is another example of us today focusing far too closely on just one aspect of what we eat? Yeah, yeah. And you've touched on a really interesting concept called... Um... A topic called nutrition nutrition reductionism. So this is where you you know you look at food and you reduce it to just you know the the single nutrient or something that's included. Um, so say for example, you might just talk about milk in terms of its calcium content, and you might totally leave out all the other you know benefits and you know that that food has. And similarly, you know if you've got a certain processed food and the manufacturer fortifies certain vitamins and minerals into it they might focus on that fortification you know say fruit loops oh but look fortified with iron but you know so it's 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 not looking at well actually fruit loops are really high in sugar and all you know preservatives and all that you know colors and all these other things that you know we'll just focus on the fact that we fortified it with iron or whole grains or and um yeah i think this is this is really problematic when we look at food in this way and there's, there's some really um some really nice books which go into this concept in detail because food manufacturers tend to exploit it and, and, you know, often try to just focus on single nutrients and, and really miss the message. And again, about yeah. that sort of what is the overall food matrix? What's, you know, what are the other sort of benefits and, and maybe disadvantages of this food? Yeah. 
And I, th- I think that's a really good launching point to talk about one of the big topics I wanted to explore here, which is looking at chronic de- disease management and how nutrition and diet um, can be used um, you know, in reduction of morbidity or perhaps even mortality in chronic disease. And mm. just to keep it broad at the moment, you know, how would you say how well utilized is food and diet in the management of chronic disease at the moment in Australia? Uh, from the perspective of doctors, probably incredibly underutilized. And that probably stems back to our lack of training in medical school, our lack of experience, you know, in being, and in practicing nutrition mm-hmm. counselling and providing advice, and 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 also referring to referring appropriately to dietitians and other skilled nutrition providers when when appropriate. So, yeah, I think diet and nutrition has a role to play in both the prevention and management of chronic diseases. And you know, diet. I mean, diet is a risk factor for one in five deaths worldwide. We know that a significant burden of disease is due to non-communicable diseases. And so, I think yeah, it's incredibly important that we start to pivot doctors towards recognising the benefit of nutrition and and promoting nutrition in both the prevention and um, management of disease. Yeah, and you've already mentioned there has been the PREDI study which showed the benefits of the Mediterranean diet. And it is already very well established how big of a risk factor Mm. poor diet and lifestyle can be in, let's say, cardiovascular disease. And we already know how big of a burden that's going to have on the Australian and the global healthcare system in the years to come and already has been. You know, why do you think it is that diet and nutrition are still so underutilized in the management and prevention of these particular diseases? Uh, it's probably a systems issue. So uh, you're probably looking at, you know, the, the amount of uh, people that have skills in nutrition and diet to provide that advice at a patient level, but equally it's our food systems. You know, we're, we basically live in an obesogenic environment where we're constantly bombarded with food advertising and, you know, processed foods. You've got vending machines everywhere. We've got, you know, we've got escalators and elevators front and centre where, you know, we really should be taking the stairs. You know, it's our whole lifestyles have changed in a way that it's really geared towards this. It's easier to put you know, weight on often than lose weight. And and equal, this kind of, you know, this does play into, you know, the role of nutrition in these different preventing and managing these diseases as well. And, you know, I think that if we look at the clinician level, we need, I think we need to look at it as a multidisciplinary effort. Mm. And so, you know, for, say, for example, looking at something like malnutrition on the wards that the nursing staff are, you know, attuned to that and, and we, we do malnutrition screening and then we refer appropriately to dietitians and get medical staff involved as well, just, you know, as one example. And there's some really significant programs run in hospitals mm. around, say, screening for malnutrition. But it's probably, it's probably there's a concept about nutrition in every policy and I think that's where we sort of – nutrition is, is a topic that can really be integrated throughout and I think it's something that we need to be thinking about, you know, on that one-on-one level, at a community level, at a population level, in terms of improving the nutritional status of Australians. Mm. And you know, going off of that, do you think, you know, is there a specific example you can recall or you might be able to think of where someone with a particular chronic disease might be able to really benefit from an improvement in their diet, but is missing out and is therefore suffering, you know, further morbidity because of that? Well, I think one space in particular which we're recognising more and more that diet has a role to play in is in mental health. Some of the work by particularly Mm. Professor Felice Jacker has looked into the role of diet, particularly that quality diet and the link that it has to depression. And so Professor Jacker has been involved Mm. in a number of clinical trials which has found that you know, when you have people with depression and you and you help them to improve their diet, 
that it can um, significantly reduce depressive symptoms. And for example, there was a there was a study that she was involved in in 2017 mm-hmm. where they recruited um, severely depressed people who had poor diets. Half of these people received sessions with a clinical dietitian and provided nutrition advice and counseling support while the other ones received social support such as friendly conversations and that kind of um, social support and then after the 12 weeks of this program in the group that had received the advice from the clinical dietitian and their nutritional support there was a, a third of those had improvement in their depressive symptoms and had even, you know, were into remission of their depression compared to only 8% of those who had been in the group wow. that had had just social support. And that was a that was a really significant study. I think it was published on the, the front cover of the wow. um, American Journal of Psychiatry. And, I mean, yeah, there's Elise Jacker also wrote a book called Brain Changer, which I think was released maybe last year, the year before. But that's also, um, you know, it's a really good book if you're interested in learning more about the role of diet in our mental health. Wow. So um, as it stands, how often is it that diet is used as an intervention in someone who has a major depressive disorder? Yeah, I'm sure there's some data on this and we could look into it, but I, I, yeah, I don't know myself. You know, this sort of work is often referred to as nutritional psychiatry. It's a pretty new and emerging mm. space. You know, probably in the last few years, it's really come into its own. And I think that, you know, it'd be sort of, it'd be helpful to sort of talk to some psychiatry registrars and see whether this is starting to be included in their training, because I think there's a, there's definitely a clear role for it. There's been multiple clinical trials now internationally, which is, has shown the benefit of, of, have done studies where they've put people with different depression or anxiety disorders onto a, um, a healthy a nutritious diet and they've, and they've found a significant change to their mental health. So yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to look at. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting interdisciplinary space to explore. Oh. And, um, you know, everything we've been talking about so far, and perhaps to no surprise, just indicates that there is a huge potential for food to play you know, in the arsenal of a medical doctor. Mm. You know, what do you think are the main obstacles right now to having diet more incorporated into clinical practice? Do you think there just needs to be more scientific evidence to be understood? Or are we just ignoring it right now? Yeah, look, in terms of the space of nutrition, there's so much that we don't know and we're constantly learning about, particularly, you know, Mm. with um, antioxidants or phytochemicals or some of those different components of the food matrix and how they interact in in health and disease. But I think that there's a lot that we do know and I think we can be pretty, even though nutrition can be, is, is, you know, is complex and some of our messaging is, is really consistent and simple, but maybe it's, you know, it's not as appealing as, you know, a new fad diet or a new pill or something, but, you know, the consistent messaging, which is in line with our Australian dietary guidelines is around, you know, eat plenty of fruit and vegetables, eat whole grain breads and cereals, you know, minimize processed foods, eat lean meat, some dairy, some fish, some nuts and legumes, you know, like the messaging is really consistent mm. and and yet it's obviously, it's. I think it's not just incredibly hard to sometimes get this message out because of all of the, the that info, that infodemic that's happening in the nutrition space or, you know, every, celebrities, mm. you know, sort of all these different messaging that you're getting from people around nutrition. Uh, it's often a space which is quite a sort of... Um, it can be a bit of a, a congested area. There's lots of different players that might think that, you know, there's lots of different non-nutrition experts in the space as well. And I think that can cloud these messages mm. as well. Who often, you know, they'll kind of promote these messages, which just sort of, they're not always quite, they're not often not evidence-based. 
there's um, certain situations where these non-nutrition experts actually can be quite dangerous as well. And do you think there are adequate measures out there, especially for those who may be less health literate? Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I think that, you know, it's really important that we have really clear messaging for those different groups and that it's targeted, you know, in the right language, in the right um, literacy level, you know, and, and different forms of media as well. And so whether it's print or television or radio, that we do need to continue that um, those messages about about nutrition. I think that, you know, with, with social media as well, this is a, a new space that we also have to really grapple with too because, you know, there'll be advertising that you can't control that comes up when you enter different websites or, or different spaces. And then obviously you've got those algorithms, which, you know, might have seen, you know, you've Googled a certain recipe for something and then you'll start yeah. seeing things be advertised. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a really tricky space. I think it's not only about having the good information out there by reputable organisations, you know, some of those government NGOs, uh, health professionals, but also that we equally are aware of the, um, the negative messaging that's coming from the food industry. Hmm. I think this is a good point for us to zoom out a little bit away from the clinical setting and more into the public health space, you know, your specialty. And I think a good point to start off would be to talk about food security. Now, Australia is a rich country. It's an OECD nation. No one would ever think that Australia has okay. issues with food security, you know, at least on the surface. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what food security actually is and how food security is in Australia. Yeah, sure. So food security, uh, as defined by the Food and Agricultural Agriculture Organisation, FAO, is uh, when all people at all times have physical, social and economic access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. That's a um, definition, but um, in terms of that, we have to think about, you know, in terms of the access, the availability of food, how we use how we use food, and how and how stable we are in regards to, you know, are we food secure at all times, or only, or you know, only sometimes when, you know, in certain parts of the world there's mm. a, a bad crop season or. Um, you know, prices change and then certain groups might become food secure and then suddenly become food insecure. So, yeah, those different components of food security are important to think about as well. Yeah, so what's your opinion on food security in Australia right now then? Yeah, so, you know, Australia is a, is a, is a wealthy country and yet in a, you know, some of the, there's been a report released by Food Bank, which is our largest food relief charity in Australia, uh, that came out last year and that, that found that more than one in five Australians have been in a situation where they've run out of food and been unable to buy any more. So that's, you know, that's 21% wow. of the population. Yeah, it's significant. It's, you know, almost 5 million people. And then when they asked, you, they had in this survey, they asked a few other questions and they also found that, you know, around 30% of Australians, at least once a week, uh, 30% of Australians could go a day without eating because they just did not have access to food. Well, who, who would think? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, I think it's it's one of those issues where we think, oh, you know, and Australia is a huge producer of food. I think, I think some of the stats around as a nation, I think mm. we can... We can meet the needs of our, like nine, over 90% of our food needs as a country. When we look down, at, you know, at a surface level and see, you know, well, are Australians food secure? Five, you know, one in five are not. So, and there's obviously certain groups that are more at risk of food insecurity. So single parent households, um, homeless people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, refugees, mm-hmm. asylum seekers. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely certain groups that food insecurity is a significant issue for. 
And would you say that it's an issue which disproportionately affects Australians living in rural and remote Australia? I think it, it comes not just so much the nature of living rural and remote, but maybe more so for remote communities, though. There are definitely issues around access and availability and cost. Mm. From when I worked um, in the Cape and the Torres, you know, the cost of food was incredibly expensive. The quality of food was very poor. There's often shortages or there was delays with food arriving. Yep. And so there was definitely challenges there. Maybe for remote rural communities, I think it would come down again to the sort of social determinants around you know, uh, education status, income level, you know, whether it's something you're in poverty or not, yeah. because there'll be certainly be some rural families that, you know, are very food secure and there'll be others that are very food insecure. So I think it would be, yeah, sort of a, a family by family basis. You know, it's a pretty alarming statistic that one in five Australians are food insecure. And I presume that most of the listeners tuning in are going to be pretty astounded by that fact being true in Australia. Um, is much being done about it right now? There's a lot of groups that are doing research in this space and doing some advocacy work around food insecurity. So Food Food Bank is one of the charity relief, uh, food charity relief groups. But anyway, so but some of um, some of these organisations like Second Bite and Oz Harvest, they rescue food. So they, uh, I guess, play a role in addressing food insecurity and also food waste. So they um, will attend markets or supermarkets and collect food and then redistribute it to these different charities providing relief to particularly these high-risk groups. But I think there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more advocacy that's needed um, to government around, you know, recognising this as an issue and taking steps to, to manage it. And you do quite a bit of work in PNG as well. Mm. How would you describe their relationship with food, nutrition and public health? Yeah, PNG definitely has some issues in regards to nutrition. And so one of the projects that I'm a part of is the Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies Research Program. Mm -hmm. And one of the first studies that we did as part of that program followed mothers and babies from their first antenatal care appointment through to the baby's first year of life. And um, there was a whole lot of different information that was collected. There was interviews as well as blood samples and Um, other biochemical tests and some of the nutrition results were incredibly striking so we found that during pregnancy 80% of women had moderate or severe anemia babies um, have uh, very high rates of stunting is that 20% stunted at six months and we know that stunting has you know significant impacts for not just the health and well-being of that child but their their potential in later life in terms of you know, education and economic opportunities. And, and that then has an impact for the whole country. And so we know in countries where there's higher rates of stunting that we um, we see poorer education and, and economic outcomes. And so I think that in PNG, the stunting rate is, is about one in two children are stunted. So yeah, nutrition issues are a significant issue in PNG. And it's something that at Burnett Institute, we're very interested in working towards reducing. Yeah, I presume that there's going to be quite a generational effect if children are experiencing malnutrition and then that affects their ability to learn at school and then the health and economic outputs associated with that, I imagine, are very serious. You know, How are you ta- targeting this at a public health level or at other points in that social determinants of health framework? Yeah, so we we are. So we have a the nutrition, particularly for for women and children and families, is a is a is a key focus area. And a lot of the work that we do is implementation research. So we are not only you know collecting data or information about a issue, we're also implementing a project to try and address this issue. 
And so at the moment, with because of some of this data that we found out with this initial cohort study, there's at the moment, there's some work being developed to implement an implementation research project to actually try and address stunting in children. And in doing so, you know, this, this is a collaborative approach. You need to work with community, you need to work with health workers, you need to work with government. Um, it's really important that with these programs that you have local buy-in and engagement and leadership and so a project like this, you know, requires a lot of groundwork before yeah. you get off the ground to make sure it's done in a way which is, you know, culturally appropriate, um, is, is, you know, contextually relevant to the community. And so all of that sort of work is happening at the moment. But, there, yeah, there are some, apart from sort of analysing some of the data from other studies, we are preparing to do some implementation work in this space. And, yeah, a lot of your work, does focus on maternal and child health and nutrition. Mm. Do you think a lot of these issues surrounding food security tend to disproportionately affect women? Yes. Yeah, I was just going to mention that before with PNG. Um, particularly women, there is definitely a gender imbalance regarding a poor nutrition status for women because if you think about this, uh, if we've already got, for example, women who might already not, not have high enough iron levels and anemia, you know, high rates, high rates of anemia, and then if they if they have lots of pregnancies close together, maybe due to a lack of um, contraception or family planning, then you know then then they're breastfeeding their baby, and this can have a compounding effect on the nutritional status of, of the woman. And so we and then we you know we often see that women will they'll put they'll put their children first in terms of if they have any food available. And so we often see that women do have poorer nutritional status, particularly when they've had like lots of children close together. Mm. Yeah, and I think a good way to cap off this discussion we're having about public health and nutrition is, you know, how would you sum up the current nutritional state of Australia? <laughs> uh, it's not very good. Um, yeah, like, look, it's, again, you know, incredibly wealthy and, and yet we have some really poor statistics when it comes to nutrition. So if we think about adults, we've got, you know, almost 70% of Australian adults are overweight or obese. Uh, 67% and and of that around 30% are obese. If we think about children, that one in four children are avoid or obese, so 25%. Um, and these numbers are growing when we've looked at, you know, when these new national nutrition surveys are done over time, you know, we see significant, this is significantly increasing. And then going back to some of those key messages around nutrition, around you know, eating plenty of fruit and vegetables and so forth, if we look at fruit and vegetable intakes, only 5% of Australian adults and children are meeting their recommended daily intakes of fruit and veggies. And, you know, so 95% are not. What are the recommended intakes? So do you know what they are, Ruben? Do you know what the recommended intake for fruit and veggies is? I'm going to put you on the spot, sorry. Yeah, you are putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, I believe vegetables is five serves a day and fruit is two serves a day. Ah, excellent. You've done your homework. Yep. That's right. So you might have remember that campaign, that go for two and five. So, yeah, so we, that's sort of looking at those, you know, two and five, how many Australians are eat, meeting their recommendations for fruit and veggies. And so in terms of fruit, so about 50% not eating enough fruit, um, but vegetables is really where the key issue is. So 93% of people are not getting those five serves like you mentioned today. And do you think a lot of the negative health associations with not eating enough vegetables, for example, might be due to a lack of fiber, maybe not getting enough micronutrients or replacing the vegetables with um, more calorie dense foods? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a macro and a micronutrient issue. So, you know, whether getting enough, you know, protein, 
you know, a lot of their, like you said, the processed foods are, you know, pretty nutritionally empty really. And so it's not just, it's also the micronutrients, you know, iron, calcium are really critical ones for children, zinc, iodine. So yeah, so I think it's, it's both. And I think it's the fact that if we're not meeting, um, if we're not eating the amount of fruit and veggies that we should, it means we're often displacing it with other foods, which will often be those highly processed and high in sugar, high in fat, high in salt foods which yeah Yeah. which then are linked to of course you know poor health and well-being poor mental health increased risk of obesity diabetes heart disease so yeah I think I think you know the main often with um, when I do the lectures to the medical students if we could get every person getting an extra piece of fruit or you know vegetables a day that would make a significant difference and that's where you know I really would push the fruit and veggies and some of the there's some some of the um, reports that the National Health and Medical Research Council, the NHMRC, have done around nutrition, has found mm. you know significant reductions in in cancer, in um, respiratory disease, in a whole they they have provided a breakdown where they look at you know if you just have an extra serve of tomatoes a day or you extra have an extra serve of you know fruit a day. So yeah, I think that can be you know one take home message from this podcast is we need to eat more fruit and vegetables. Age old message. <laughs> exactly. Now, it's definitely going to be the interest of um, our listeners here as I assume a majority of future doctors. And I really want to talk about, you know, the, the role of the doctor in the diet of the patient and you know, how medical students and doctors are going to educate themselves on this. Yeah, maybe you can speak about what's being done at the moment to make sure that you know, nutrition and diet are going to make their way into common medical practice more so mm. than it currently is. Mm, it's a very topical space. Look, you know, I think we have to start by acknowledging that, you know, dietitians are the experts in nutrition. They're the nutrition specialists. However, it's critically important that doctors understand nutrition and I, and I believe that can provide some nutrition advice and they nutrition competent as well. You know, when we, when we look at some of those statistics that we've talked about today, we look at, look at the fact that globally, you know, one in three people suffer from some form of malnutrition, whether it's wasting, stunting, you know, overweight or obesity, vitamin and mineral deficiencies, you know, nutrition is a major cause of morbidity and mortality. And so I think doctors need to be able to to, be able to manage nutrition issues. And in terms of what's happening today, like if we, you know, there's one, we know that there's a lack of nutrition content in medicine. I think there's a real role for nutrition to be integrated throughout medical degrees. So it's not, you know, a separate standalone topic, but it's we are, you know, the content that we're already teaching in medicine, nutrition fits very nicely in there. When we're having a lecture on diabetes, talk about the role of nutrition. We're having a lecture on you know, cardiovascular disease or an AMI, talk about nutrition. When we're talking about, you know, growth and development of children, talk about nutrition. When we're talking about pregnancy, talk about nutrition. Like I think that we can integrate nutrition throughout the curriculum. It doesn't need to be an added thing on, on top of already often very busy and crammed curriculums that medical courses often are. I think that in doing not only in providing nutrition teaching and education, but we need to we also need to have more interdisciplinary opportunities so that when you're, you know, a medical student, you actually spend time with the dietitian in the team and you shadow them and you understand what they do and you know when to refer and how to refer. Um, and that equally applies to all the different allied health. I think that we really need to, I, I mean, from my personal experience, I don't think we had enough interdisciplinary work together and really recognising, we talked about the multidisciplinary team, but I don't think we really had opportunity to understand what does a physio do? What does a speech pathologist do? What does a diabetes educator do? You know, how can we work together to get better outcomes for this patient? And so I think that 
you know, I think that there's a real role there in teaching nutritionists to also recognise when to refer to a dietitian and in what circumstances. Do you see much nutrition education making its way into general practice training and physician training as well? Yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I think not just at a medical school level, but whether we can get nutrition integrated throughout the training years as well. Because I think that, you know, and this is sort of with all aspects of medicine, if we don't, if we, you know, we might have a lecture on it or, you know, hear something about it, but we don't actually have an opportunity to practice it and put it into part of our, you know, assessment and management of patients and it won't become something that we just naturally do. And so I think we do need to um, integrate it a bit more throughout. And again, that sort of knowing when to refer to a dietitian or, you know, when other issues are needed because it might be around, you know, it might be a social worker issue around access to going to the shops or something or cooking. So I think we need to always think about the multidisciplinary team. Yeah, and you mentioned how important the multidisciplinary care really is. How would you describe what the role of the doctor is in giving nutritional advice without overstepping you know, or stepping onto the toes of the dietitian? You know, we need to, like doctors are not dietitians, obviously, we need to recognise the role of dietitians. And so I think it's not that we're not that we're advocating for doctors to replace dietitians by any means. I think that dietitians are really still the nutrition experts. It's just that more that doctors can still play that role in providing some assessments, some advice, and work together with the dietitians as part of the team. And I think, you know, particularly if we look at when um, there's been surveys and interviews of, with doctors, particularly GPs, and we've asked patients about their experiences with doctors and GPs, we know that often doctors and GPs in particular are the, are the preferred providers of nutrition for patients. So they'll have to, even though, you know, we might recognise that the role of the dietitian is that still patients go to their doctor expecting to provide a credible, you know, nutrition advice. And so doctors need to be able to provide that advice and refer when they need. Right. And so what is the scope of the doctor, you know, let's say a GP generally in providing nutritional advice? What can doctors actually do? So they could take a, you know, a diet history and just when they're talking to a patient, particularly if they have a condition which is very related to nutrition, maybe, you know, the diabetes or they've come in with, you know, some management of their blood sugar levels, Mm -hmm. that they would be able to take a very brief diet history, you know, what have they had for breakfast and lunch and dinner? What about snacks? What about after the dinner? That they could talk about exercise, that they could also do like if they need to do any anthropometric measurements, so, you know, height and weight, BMI, depending on the patient whether you have to do skin fold testing or they could just do some basic nutrition assessments and then also provide some tailored advice so depending on the information they found from the patient they could you know provide some general advice and some next steps and then could refer for you know more specialized dietary management if that was needed. Yeah so it'd be pretty interesting to hear about um, how you you know marry together your dietetics nutrition and also medical training in clinical practice and also in your public health work as well? Yeah, for, for me, at, at a population level, I think that there's definitely, you know, key links between nutrition and, and for maternal child health, there's quite, you know, an easy and clear link there in terms of being able to advocate for policy and programs that address those issues, particularly when, you know, as we've discussed earlier about the role of, you know, in terms of the nutritional status of pregnant women and then the, the child and, and so and the baby and, and so forth. So, there's definitely that role there. From at a clinical level, I think that when I, when I'm working as a clinical doctor, which I I still do some work at the Royal Women's um, as a clinician, that I think it just makes me think a bit more holistically about a patient in terms of 
you know, could nutrition be, you know, relevant for this person? Could it be an issue for them? And I guess being able to sort of more comfortably, you know, approach that issue and, and discuss it and then probably be more conscious of referring when needed and those sorts of things that maybe someone that doesn't have nutrition training might not be so familiar with. Yeah, and coming off of that, you know, how would you describe what is the best way for doctors and medical students to be advocating for better nutrition, you know, in the public health space and also for their patients? Yeah, like I think that, you know, as doctors, we can really advocate at all levels. So, you know, whether we, you know, locally with, you know, with our individual patients that we can provide nutrition advice and guidance, but also for our community. So there's, you know, some doctors that might be involved in certain, you know, walking groups or cooking groups, or they might be advocating, for example, whether there's access to certain uh, fresh food versus, mm. you know, the presence of different, you know, more junk food options. So, for example, there was, you know, when there's be, there was a community in Victoria that they were going to open a new McDonald's in, and I know there were some doctors there that were particularly advocating against the opening of that McDonald's for that community. So I think, you know, at a community level that doctors can have an impact and also at a, at a population level too in terms of policy. You know, government regulation has a really important role to play here in terms of, you know, the advertising, marketing, of food and you know I think increasingly we're recognizing that the social determinants of health that that's obviously critically important but we're increasingly recognizing that the commercial determinants of health equally play a role in in influencing uh, poor health outcomes. Unfortunately that's all the time we have for today Dr Wilson. Thank you very much for speaking with me today it's been a really enlightening discussion. No worries at all. If any of the people tuning in would like to get in contact with you what's the best way to do that? Yeah, no worries at all. They can contact me by my email address, alise.wilson at burnett.edu.au. That's no problem at all. Happy to keep having this conversation and, you know, hopefully we have the next generation of doctors are more nutritionally savvy um, and competent and some nutrition advocates as well. Yes, I certainly hope so as well. And just one last question to finish off. What is the best advice that you've received in your career? Hmm. Um, Something that's really stayed with me and has been relevant in whatever role I've been in is something that was said to me when I was just working as a had finished my nutrition dietetics degree was working in North Queensland um, and had only recently graduated I was at a a workshop around health promotion um, and there was an elder from Normanton there which is a community in North Queensland and um, and he said and I was talking to him about the fly-in, fly-out, you know, doctors and other health providers that come into the communities and how he manages, you know, how sort of the community feels about that. And and he said to me that, you know, and so then I sort of, because I was also in a similar position where I was doing some fly-in, fly-out of different islands in the Torres and, and Cape York. And he said to me that, look, you know, no matter what community you go into, you need to realise that they're all, you know, very different communities, often very different you know, languages and cultures and customs. And he said, the best thing that you can do is to realise and remember that you have two eyes, two ears and one mouth and you should use them in that order and in that ratio. So basically saying to look and to listen and then to talk last. And so I think that's been actually incredibly helpful when going into any new environment or any new situation that you, you know, that you really take the time to understand the place that you're working, to understand the people you're working with and to really look and, and listen to people and, and to deeply listen to people 
um, before you try and speak or change something or do something. So I think, you know, that, that advice was, um, has, has sort of put me in good stead in, in many different circumstances. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Wilson, and take care. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Ampsampi Podcast M2.0 series. Our code word this week is graffiti, which if you go to our website, m20.com.au, and insert the code word in our portal, you go into the running for some great prizes and giveaways. And over the course of our series, we'll be able to collect an image per week for our M20 sticker book. The M2.0 series is a subset of Ampule, the Australian Medical Students Association's ongoing podcast series to highlight speakers who would have presented at our 2020 AMSA National Convention. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast, you can visit our website m20.com.au or our parent website amsa.org.au. Or if you prefer, we are on social media as AMSA National Convention on Facebook and AMSA Convention on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not definitively represent those of AMSA or their subsidiaries. If you'd like to know more about our public policies, please visit our website at amsa.org.au and select advocacy followed by official policy. This episode of Ampule was hosted and edited by Ruben T, myself, and with guest Dr. Elise Wilson and music by James Palmier and credits by Nick Barrett.